Good afternoon, first of all, to all of you who have decided to join us today. Um, my name is Erica Watson, and I am the president and CEO of the Intersection Collective. I am also your moderator for today's conversation on embracing neurodiversity in the workplace and unlocking a diverse talent pool for your organizations. I am joined in this conversation by my esteemed colleague, Stacy West. Um, Stacy is an organizational development and leadership training expert coming to us from DTE. Stacy, do you wanna take a couple seconds and talk yeah. about your experience? Yeah, so um, I've been in the leadership and development space and um, specifically um, uh, training and facilitation for the better part of 20 years. And I've been um, uh, spending like the last decade specifically coaching leaders and um, leadership development. My passion of neurodiversity comes from a personal, um, from a personal journey. Um, myself, I have ADHD. My daughter is also twice exceptional. She is gifted and has ADHD. Um, so I have had an extremely um, interesting journey um, in the learning space and in, the, in my personal journey of how to accommodate not only my daughter and our family, but also just bringing those practices into the classroom and letting, giving those tips and tricks to leaders so that they can create like a very inclusive environment for their teams. So I'm super excited to share with you um, some of those tips and tricks. Wonderful, thank you. So in this particular session on embracing neurodiversity in the workplace, um, what we're gonna do first initially is establish a foundational understanding of neurodiversity and neurodivergence. What is it that we mean? What's included in this very broad bucket? During our conversation today, we will also be able to examine the benefits of neurodiversity as a key contributor to our organizational workforce. We're gonna investigate some good practices that are currently being employed by various organizations, um, as well as spend a little bit of time talking through frameworks that we can take back to our organizations to help build our own work locally around establishing neurodivergent sourcing systems, creating cultures of inclusion, because beyond hiring people who have various forms of ability, um, we wanna make sure that we're bringing them into environments where they're set up to be successful. So we're gonna talk about some frameworks for how do we cultivate that within our organizations. Data suggests that as many as 20% of people aged 18 to 65 are neurodivergent. Despite one in five people identifying as neurodiverse, the unemployment rate amongst people with disabilities is twice that for people without disabilities. Organizations that want to recruit and retain individuals with disabilities need to do a little bit more than to just provide a competitive workplace benefits package to attract them. These organizations also need to be really innovative and active in their thought process around how do we create a supportive and inclusive culture that we believe is really the secret sauce that will make an organization an employer of choice for people with disabilities. This is our roadmap for our time together today. Um, you'll notice a lot of times while, when we're speaking, we'll also have visuals that support what it is that we're saying. One element that helps a neurodivergent community participate and engage is having multi-sensory ways to absorb information. So having notes that go along, having slides and visuals, even having some tactical and manipulative items, 
that convey the same point that you're trying to communicate are all part of ways that we need to think about diversifying our communication if we're really trying to create an environment that is inclusive of the neurodivergent population. Quick icebreaker before we go too much further into the conversation, please just raise your hand. How many of us are working for an organization that has an intentional recruitment program targeting neurodivergent talent? Okay, so just a few. Of those, somebody's being called out, it's okay. <laughs> of those that have a specific program targeting neurodivergent talent, how many of those same organizations also have a management training or leadership development program that helps leaders and people managers within that organization be better managers to people who are neurodivergent? So we lost half of our audience. And therein lies the opportunity for us all, right? So I don't want anyone to feel left out of that particular equation. We talked about the high, high representation of neurodivergence in our population. As many as one in five people identify as neurodiverse. We also talked about the extreme unemployment rates when you talk about the disability community relative to the typically developing community. So we've got this amazing talent pool that's out here in space that you know, many organizations are thinking like, how do we speak directly to them? How do we understand what their needs are? How do we create employment brands and value propositions that bring them in to our organization? That's just the first question. The second question that needs to be asked, or really is question like 1.5 that needs to be asked is, and then when those people get here, how do we ensure that they stay? How do we ensure that they're successful? How do we ensure that they're put in positions where they can maximize their peaks and we can try to level out some of the valleys that come with neurodivergence? This right here is just a graphic to help us understand what is neurodivergence. Typically when we think about diversity, so it's great I think that we're having a conversation about neurodivergence within the confines of a DEI and A framework, but typically when we think about diversity, we think characteristics such as race gender, sexual orientation, but there is also diversity in the way people's brains develop and the way our brains work. That is called neurodiversity. Neurodivergent is a non-medical term for when someone's brain processes, learns, or behaves differently from what is considered typical. Neurodiverse people think, process thoughts and experiences, and interact with the world around us in a unique way. Note I said us because I represent part of the neurodivergent population of people. There are lots of there are lots of different disorders, and I'm going to say that in puppet fingers, that qualify as neurodivergent, right? There's dyslexia, there's dysgraphia, there's ADHD, there's Tourette's, there's autism spectrum disorder, there's giftedness. There's lots of different things that represent the neurodiverse bubble. The most common form of neurodiversity in the workplace is dyslexia, followed by dyspraxia, then ADHD, and lastly, the autism spectrum disorder rounds out the top four. Other neurodiverse conditions, as we've discussed, include dyscalculia, Tourette syndrome, giftedness, just to name but a few. In most cases, the causes for neurodiversity are unknown. And there are no known cures, assuming someone who is neurodivergent would want to be cured. Um, neurodiverse people have different strengths 
And we also have different struggles from people whose brains develop more typically. Challenges can come in the form of reading and writing, social interaction, communication, and also can bring some superpowers like very strong pattern recognition skills, very strong analytical thinking, deep focus and concentration on particular things, an enhanced memory, heightened sensory awareness, creativity, and visual processing skills. Typically, career paths where people who are neurodivergent are hyper-successful, entrepreneurialism, technology, architecture, and the arts. Um, th those are places where our superpowers really tend to shine. Um, some of the most successful entrepreneurs that you never thought of are neurodiverse, are dyslexic. People like Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, people like Thomas Jefferson, um, all dyslexic, all neurodiverse. So boundless opportunities for creativity and innovation. Um, if we can learn how to adjust our organization to not be disturbed by the turbulence by some of the places where neurodivergent talent will struggle. As we work together to prepare a roadmap for today's conversation, we thought it might be helpful to share some good ideas that are currently in practice for attracting and retaining neurodiverse talent. The Neurodiversity Community Accelerator is a collaborative based back home in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, that um, my firm, the Intersection Collective, has the privilege of working with. Um, it is a collaborative of about a dozen employers, vocational rehabilitation, state and county agencies in the Cincinnati area, as well as not-for-profit organizations. We all came together to try to develop broad-scale systems that would help all of us do a better job of identifying and attracting neurodivergent talent, um, would do a better job of creating space for neurodivergent talent to be successful within our individual organizations, and would do a better job of helping those around neurodiverse people do a better job of managing and supporting them. Um, this particular coalition has three subgroups, a sourcing subcommittee, which is focused on building strong talent pipelines and rethinking the interview process to better surface the skills and abilities of neurodivergent people. There is a coaching subgroup, which is focused on developing a network of life coaches that can be a resource for neurodivergent talent um, and help them along their path to self-sufficiency and career and life planning, um, as well as a roles and responsibilities subgroup. And that particular group is focused on developing tools, trainings, um, and resources to help neurodiverse talent build successful careers within the organizations that are participating in the coalition, as well as to help managers of neurodiverse talent cultivate team and organizational cultures that bend to support neurodiverse talent. And I think that's a really important thing to slow down and really turn over in our minds. What does it look like to create an organization that bends to the needs of diversity instead of asking diversity to bend to the needs of organizations who wish to do business as usual? That is really the secret sauce that I referenced earlier on. If we can be successful at coaching and guiding our organizations to do a better job of bending to highlight the superpowers and the strengths of diversity, we get better outcomes, not just from the individuals, but better outcomes from the team and better outcomes for the organization. Um, it has too long been a truism that we expect diversity to assimilate within an organization, or that diversity is tokenized, fetishized, 
within an organization. And so what we really want to do today is to kind of walk with you all on a learning journey to begin to ask yourself questions, not just personally, but of your organization and what is it that we can do as individuals um, and as teams to try to change that dynamic, to try to change that truism that diversity is supposed to assimilate or is somehow supposed to be um, exceptional or, or tokenized, but how does it become valued truly for its difference and uniqueness um, and put in situations where those uniquenesses can shine um, and the struggles cause less turbulence for the teams and for the organizations. Stacey, I want to make sure that I'm pulling you yeah. into Thank the you. conversation here. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences with creating um, tools, systems, mm -hmm. organizational cultures, and trainings that make room for neurodiverse yeah. talent to be successful at DTE? Yep, um, absolutely. Um, thanks, Erica, for all of the background and color on that. But um, my journey of um, embracing neurodiversity and just embracing differences altogether um, came with a struggle. Um, I, um, like I said in the beginning, I have ADHD and I didn't realize until I got into my adult life that I suffered from that. I just thought I had a hard time organizing. I thought I had a hard time um, uh, sticking to task, um, but I was really good when I found something that I was super interested in and I would just excel with that. Um, so now what I do is I've learned from that hardship that I had to overcome the first 10 years of my career, and I bring that to my leaders. So some, when I was preparing for this um, panel, I wanted to kind of come up with some phrases of what does, you know, neurodiversity, like if you don't have like a DE&I department, at your company, because I saw the hands that raised. There was only like, you know, we all don't have those at our companies and we all don't have necessarily the resources, but you don't need necessarily all of those resources to get started. Um, so some phrases, some words that kind of came to mind for me was language, space, and Erica had mentioned space, options and flexibility. These are all things that we can do as leaders and as facilitators and collaborators in our company. So with the pandemic, some of the silver linings of the pandemic is the acceleration of technology. So those of you who use Teams or use Zoom, there's closed captioning. So that helps for those viewers that maybe have trouble hearing or might have trouble kind of paying attention. Um, we also have the ability to record meetings. So you might have someone in my in the past when I would facilitate, if someone was kind of drifting off or kind of doodling or doing this on the side, my first reaction was they're not paying attention, they're not gonna get they're not getting out of this training what I'm putting into it. What I've learned now is everyone learns differently, everyone absorbs that information differently. So it's giving them options, it's giving people options of do you want to, how do you want to absorb this information? Asking them, not assuming. Some of my journey came through, um, through my daughter as well. She's been like a true gift to me in seeing how to ask people what they want, how to um, not assume 
that just because I learned this information and I absorbed this information this way, doesn't mean that she can or wants to absorb the information that way. So, you know, I think we've done a really good job um, in companies of saying, yes, diversity is necessary. I think we can all agree that diversity is necessary when we want the different voices in the room. But now we're at the point, to Erica's point, like 1.5 of now how do we support the different voices in the room? How do we support the different needs in the room? And it's easier, it's easier than you think. And you don't need an entire DEI organization to get started. I would absolutely encourage you to reach out to those subject matter experts. Um, and if you don't have them specifically on your team, seek them out. There are people on your teams more than likely that have a passion around DEI or have a passion around neurodivergency. So I'm going to go ahead and pass it. Pass it. Yeah, I think it would be helpful to like give some examples that we've seen in practice of like kind of what these segments can look like. So um, I'd like to share with you all an example of modifying a recruitment and interview process to be more um, friendly to neurodiverse talent. This is something that we've done through the accelerator. Um, this was about three years ago that we did this and this particular effort was led by Procter & Gamble. But what they did, they started out with a cohort of eight neurodiverse individuals and instead of putting them through a traditional interview process for um, a product engineering position, um, what they did was they gave them a six week special project to work on. So these eight individuals worked together as a team on a specialized project um, that was tactile. So there was like some Lego building. They had to create like a three dimensional model of the product that they were trying to develop. Um, they had to collaborate with each other in various ways in order to problem solve the case. It's very reminiscent of a, a business school case that they were being asked to solve as a group and build something together. Um, at the end of that six week process, six of the eight were offered jobs um, as product designers at Procter & Gamble. Three years later, 100% of those six people are still employed with Procter & Gamble in their product design capacities. Those folks were coming from very uh, like hourly entry level jobs. A couple of them were baristas. A couple of them were greeters at with Walmart. A um, couple of them were um, cashiers, baggers with Kroger company, which Kroger is also a participant in this coalition, so they weren't necessarily super thrilled to hear that PNG was poaching their folks. But um, the, goal, the, out, the outcome is, is what you have now is you've got six people who before, um, because they were often weeded out of norm, typical interview processes, there are things that they just don't do well. Um, because of their neurodivergence. Things like, if you need me to make consistent routine eye contact with you to know that I'm paying attention, I'm not capable of doing that. That's not how I function. Doesn't mean I'm not listening, doesn't mean that I'm not making meaning of everything you're saying, but you're asking me to do something that 
my brain is doesn't do is not wired to do um, so by removing some of those steps that oftentimes weed out people who are neurodivergent but don't at all speak to the skill set necessary to do the job well you we were able to create lanes of employment for six people who before that were working you know $15 an hour jobs honest work great jobs not knocking the barista work not knocking the greeter work that's fantastic that's what you want to do. If you've got skills and desires to do something else, um, this is a great example of creating a lane to be able to surface that potential. And now those folks are all employed, like I said, with Procter & Gamble in various project or product design, product management roles. Um, and they started out three years ago at $80,000 a year. So a huge life change, not just for them, but for their families and what it means to be able to create um, self-sufficiency for families by thinking differently, thinking more inclusively about how you design your interviewing and your selection process, and also how you train um, your talent recruiters, your, your talent advisors within the organization so that they are um, making meaning of what they're observing in ways that are intercultural and inclusive and not making decisions that someone's not capable, someone's not competent. The, the biggest buzz word is that person just not gonna be a good fit here. Things like that oftentimes work against diversity, work against diverse talent. So I think that's one example of work that the sourcing group is doing to be able to identify, um, re re revisit interview and selection processes that really focus on the skills necessary to be successful at the job um, and don't necessarily focus on some of the social issues or some of the reading issues that would prevent someone who is neurodivergent from being able to shine in a job interview. Um, do you want to yeah, add something? Yeah, I'll add a few things mm -hmm. to that. So, you know, it's one thing for the, you know, getting, um, getting your folks trained um, that are recruiting, but then once you have those folks in your, you know, in your company, how do you then provide the support to them so that they can support and embrace neurodiversity and just differences in general? Um, and that really starts with modeling the behavior Right, so it really starts with um, providing options. So one of the one of the things that I that I employ um, with my trainings and with the leaders that I coach is, you know, what questions are you asking your team? How are you bringing your team into into the conversation? Um, when I'm doing trainings or facilitating, um, I'm asking. Um, questions and also providing um, providing pathways for my leaders to um, complete. I'm going to say assignments and quotes, but complete like work that they're doing in a various in various different ways. So like in the old days, like which wasn't that long ago, like five years ago, um, you know they would we would expect leaders to complete an assessment maybe online or. Um, hand in a project, um, maybe typed out or on a computer. And now what I'm finding very successful is meeting people where they need to be met. So that also means 
I have to know who my leaders are. I have to know what their needs are. So if I'm noticing I have a class of, let's say 30 leaders and seven leaders aren't responding to my insistent emails to get their work in, I'm gonna reach out to them because my knee jerk goes to, well, they don't care. They're not spending time on this. And when I call them to find out how I can support them, how I can help them be successful, I find very different stories, <laughs> very different stories. Like, oh, you know, like I forgot, but then also like, I'm having a hard time understanding what you're asking me for. And then I have a conversation with them. Like, this is what I'm looking for. And then we just talk it out. So it kind of goes back to your, um, you know, to the Procter & Gamble of how can we, how, how can we have our teams provide and provide work and provide, um, provide service without having to do it in a square box. So it doesn't have to just be the square box, especially for a lot of like the, the um, more intellectual work that most of us are doing now. You know, it's not the assembly line work of, you know, of Henry Ford. Of Henry Ford. Yeah. And, and it's very hard for us to get out of that mode, right? Like, like we know it inside, but it's like, how do, I, how do I affect that change? You are all leaders and change agents for your company. And change just starts with one person. Mm -hmm. It starts with starting the conversation. And if you don't have that momentum... If you don't have the backing, you just continue the conversation and eventually you're going to get people that will follow you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to give a little bit more space and room for the tenets of developing a solid neurodiversity inclusion strategy for your organization. For those of you, most of us come from companies that don't have DEI teams, like there's not a, a team of subject matter expert there. And so we're really kind of doing it for ourselves. We're bootstrapping it. And for those of you who find yourself in that situation, a couple of things that I highly recommend. One, do your own work. So it can be very helpful to reach out across lines of difference to ask for guidance. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the comment, nothing about us without us. Please do not go creating programs to be inclusive of neurodiversity without understanding the lived experience of the neurodivergent. So yes, have some conversations, reach out. That's one thing that you can do immediately as an individual is educate yourself. However, your education of yourself isn't simply just reaching out across lines of difference to understand more of the lived experience of individuals who own that particular identity. Doing so produces undue burden on the person who is already marginalized and already inequitably exposed to opportunity and access. People with diverse identities, neurodivergent identities, racially diverse identities, gender diverse identities, whatever you have it, we're not here to be your teachers about how to be diverse and inclusive. We're here to help and we're happy to share our experiences, but we're not your sole Sherpa. You're responsible also for doing some work. So that can look like listening to podcasts that are produced by people who own that identity, because oftentimes what they're talking about is their lived experience. So seek out podcasts or seek out books or seek out research and white papers that are written by people 
who are neurodivergent. Um, if what you're really trying to do is understand the lived experience of the neurodiverse population, do the same thing about people who are black and brown. If what you're trying to do is understand racial diversity and the experiences of black women within the organization or the experiences of brown people or native people um, or indigenous people, I should say, within your organization. Google is free and she is very helpful. So do your work to find access to information so that you can educate yourself on what creating a true inclusive program, a true inclusive strategy really should address. The best way to be an ally to anyone is to go up to them and ask them or to understand their lived experience and ask them, what does allyship look like for you in this moment? What do you need today? because it could be very different than what you think. And asking that question really is a very, um, a very culturally humble question to ask. It means that I'm interested, I'm here to be an ally, to be a partner, a co-conspirator with you. And I'm asking you to tell me what that looks like for you in this moment. Um, so that's one thing that I think that we can all do um, is do a better job of educating ourselves, doing our own work, but also asking questions, building, which requires relationship, right? So you're not just going to walk up to a stranger that you think might be on the spectrum and say, hey, I, you look like you could be neurodiverse. Well, tell me what your experience is. We're not doing that. It's not what you hear me saying, okay? <laughs> Please don't go back to your job and say, this lady at the conference told me to ask this question. I did not tell you to do that. Um, what I am suggesting is build relationships. And through that rapport and those relationships, the information about their lived experience will come. Stacey, if you want to advance the slide, I feel like I'm teeing you up beautifully to talk yeah. about building bridges <laughs> yeah. and what it actually looks like to build bridges and build relationships across lines of difference. Yeah, so um, some, of the, some of the work that we do at DTE um, and some of the work that I've done with other companies that I've, that I've been with in my career is um, partnering with different business units. Partnering with, I'm not sure how many of you have um, ERGs or employee resource groups. Those are amazing resources for you. Um, they're a great way to network. It's all about networking. It's all about, um, you're not gonna necessarily know who your neurodivergent people are at work, but by networking, by partnering with them, by really socializing ideas, um, you can create that partnership. Um, you know, if, if, your, if your goal is to create an inclusive environment and to create these programs that really retain all diverse talent, regardless of, you know, where, where they are, um, <coughs> It is really building that bridge. And um, today, more than ever, it's easier. Like, I'm introverted. So I am not one that's going to just walk up to any one of you and start talking about neuro neurodivergency or any topic. But if I had your Teams or your LinkedIn information, I would certainly send you a message, because that's how I communicate. Um, 
So today, more than ever, it's easier to get like 10 minutes, 15 minutes on someone's calendar and just socialize ideas of this is what I'm looking to do. Like I have this project that I'm working on and I'm having trouble doing X and this is what I need. And you're going to get a flood of information from whoever you're talking about. Like, oh yeah, you know, you should go talk to Jeff. He is great with numbers or he's great with architecture. He's great with whatever it is that, that you're looking for. And you're going to really build those. The other thing I would mention is um, be intentional with your language. What I mean by that is over-communicate. Over-communicate. We're in an age now where we are um, just bombarded electronically with information. Like how many emails do you just have sitting unread in your, in your mailbox? I don't even look at the number anymore. I play the triage game in my mailbox. Um, but everyone, everyone receives information differently, right? Some people respond by email. Some people respond by text. Some people respond in Teams. Um, there's probably other platforms too. Utilize all the technology that you have to reach people. Just because someone's not responding to your email doesn't mean they don't care or they don't want an opportunity to be on a project or a team. They just don't know it exists yet because you haven't reached them. It's our responsibility as leaders and facilitators to reach, to, to, to reach those people, to reach people. It's not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I feel like um, many of us here today are, are in the HR, yeah. in the HR domain within our organizations. And oftentimes as human resources, we are asked to be the culture keepers of the organization. Um, and I would love any sort of experience or thoughts you have on how we can use our role as culture keepers within our organizations mm -hmm. to inspire conversations about inclusivity and accessibility. Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, my, my role in HR is I don't have all the answers, but I am the bridge between different business units. So if a business unit comes to me and they want a specific program or they want specific change, I am the one who starts the conversation. I'm the one who, I will start getting people in a room. I will start doing the matchmaking and trying to find, trying to find those diverse individuals. So yeah, as HR, we don't have to have, and we shouldn't have all the answers. We are the ones that are just really the conduit between the people that do have the answers. It's the people out, whether it's in the field or the people doing the work, they're the ones who have the answers. So we're just creating that space for them. Mm -hmm. um, I want to share, if we can move to the next slide, and then I'm going to pull up and make sure that we save the last 15 minutes for questions. But um, what I have here is this is a diversity inclusion framework. It is not proprietary, although my firm um, does use this quite a bit when we are working with organizations to develop their own um, DEI and A strategies. This is a framework where um, helps you plot out where your organization might be with regards to making room for diversity and to realize belonging and to begin helping your organization develop a high impact DEI and A strategy. 
Um, what I like most about the simple two by two um, are the clear culture characteristics for an organization at any stage on their diversity journey. So it's two axes. One focuses on how does your organizational culture actually value difference? So is diversity just a check the box? Is that the culture of your organization? Is diversity um, embraced? And do we really see the power and potential of diverse ways of thinking, diverse ways of being, diverse experiences? There's a full continuum. It's not an all or nothing kind of thing when you think about how your organization really treats and values diversity. The other continuum on this two by two is belongingness. Like, does your organization really make room for anybody to experience inclusion and belonging? Like, is the idea of bringing your full self and all of your identities into your work experience a conversation that your organization has had, is willing to have, is ready to have? Um, and that will kind of help you chart out where on the belonging equation you might be. But just to give you some details in the four quadrants here, exclusion is where kind of nobody really wants to be, right? So the organization doesn't really value difference, doesn't really value diversity, and doesn't really want to have. Not that we haven't had the conversation, we probably had it and decided like we don't necessarily care that much about whether our employees feel like they're bringing their whole selves to work. We don't necessarily aspire to be a place where people can experience inclusion and belonging. Nobody's gonna say it as boldly as, out loud as that, but sometimes our cultures reinforce that message. And so you need to ask yourself the hard questions. Is our culture yelling that message despite what we might feel in our, in our hearts and minds? But exclusion feels like um, when diversity is not valued and an organization's investment in cultivating belonging for all staff is low. Diversity in exclusion environments often feels left out. Attracting diverse talent to the organization is difficult. The employment brand of the organization is poor amongst diverse talent. So your Better Business Bureau rating amongst communities of color, amongst communities of different abilities is low. When people think about your coming to work for your particular organization, you know, in their, in their girlfriend's group chat, they might be like, I don't know. I don't know about that place. If you feel like your, your company's brand has that kind of reputation on the street or within communities, you might be experiencing an exclusion culture. Out-of-the-box thinking occurs very rarely at organizations that have exclusion cultures and is quickly snuffed out by leadership within the organization. Cultures of assimilation, still low in valuing identity or diversity, but more prone to create room for belonging. So these are organizations often that will, um, they'll often celebrate every month, right? So like every identity, every group has a month or a week or a day. Like these are organizations like every time you come into the, best, the, the lobby of the main office, there's like a different banner celebrating a different, but, there's, there's, but it's very lip servicey. There's really no content or material or strategy behind our budget to fund real inclusion work. So lip service to belonging, but still not really valuing diversity. 
Cultures of assimilation say to their employees, we are all the same. Diversity learns, people with difference learn very quickly to mask key parts of their identity and to facilitate fitting and to facilitate their ability to fit in. Typically, our superpowers are left on the sidelines and organizations don't realize the benefits that inherently come with valuing difference. Cultural assimilation can work well if the organization operates without competition. So if you happen to be in an industry that is a monopoly um, or is a heavily regulated industry where there is not much of an opportunity for competitive advantages to be realized, assimilation might be okay. If you're the military, assimilation might be okay. Could be. Cultures of assimilation will be able to attract diverse talent, but will find it difficult to keep diverse talent for long stretches of their career. This is especially true for diverse talent with highly sought after skill sets like proficiency with coding languages or hard to find credentials like high level security clearances. If that's the population that you're trying to hire, attract, and retain, and you're operating within a culture of assimilation, you will find lots of challenges. Um, and you will, find un, you will find higher turnover rates than your industry peers who have cultures that do a better job of valuing diversity. Differentiation, we're valuing diversity, but we don't really care a whole lot about feeling included or meaningful belonging within the organization. And organizations that are in the differentiation zone or the differenti differentiation stage of their inclusion journey, diversity feels tokenized. So people who carry diverse identities feel tokenized. These are typically the organizations where diversity feels like they're operating in a glass box. Their performance daily is considered high stakes. In this organization, the culture that it's the culture that sets quotas and is very likely to point to their one vice president who's also neurodiverse or their one senior engineer who also happens to be a woman of color. This is also the organization that is very proud of having their very first openly queer CEO, but the succession plan currently only includes other white neurotypical heterosexual cisgendered men. Diversity in these organizations meaning diverse talent in these organizations, typically report the lowest levels of psychological safety and the highest levels of burnout. Those are characteristics that you will see if your organization is operating in the differentiation zone. The inclusion zone, which is where I think we all aspire to be, but also I wanna make clear that you don't get to one of these places and just exist and just stay. It's a continuous journey. Being an inclusive leader, having an inclusive organizational culture is an ongoing practice, not too different from your yoga practice or a meditation practice. You never really reach perfection. It's an asymptotic curve. You just keep working at it. You keep practicing. You stay in the discipline. And you get closer and closer and closer to what your nirvana is, closer and closer and closer to what your ideal state is. Your inclusion journey is very much the same. So organizations that are operating in their inclusion zone. In this zone, this is where both diversity and organizational culture are experiencing the best of each other. This is the place where the person who thinks differently and the person who is hyper-creative and has the ability to hyper-focus on things that are really interesting to them 
isn't penalized because they, you know, missed turning in an expense report by the deadline or it doesn't come up in their performance review over and over and over again that they're, um, that, that they missed a deadline on administrative projects. That or this culture gets that person an administrative assistant and calls it a day. You know, this culture puts that person on new product innovation teams and allows that person to lead focus groups with consumers and customers about the future of what it is they want and helps the organization build products before the customer even knows they need it. This is Apple creating the iPhone when we were all fine with our flip phones, when we were all fine with our Blackberries. Eric, I wanted to point something yeah. out that you mentioned. You mentioned, she mentioned masking. And um, for those of you who may um, be neurodivergent or know someone who's neurodivergent, this is something that you spend your entire like childhood and your school life masking whatever the thing is that, um, is not typical. So um, uh, these people spend a ton of energy just trying to assimilate, um, so they're exhausted. Um, but if you can create that environment where they don't have to worry about not fidgeting or not being quote unquote normal, um, and they can just be themselves, you're gonna unlock this like creative like powerhouse because it is, I, I, I can speak from personal experience and professional experience by creating these environments. Um, it doesn't happen overnight because someone who grows up in a, you know, when you grow up with a neurodivergency, um, you, you don't know how to act <laughs> in a way that's not in a typical normal world. When someone's like, yeah, you can fidget, you can do this. They're gonna provide those tools for you. It's, um, it's a completely different world. So um, yeah, just be um, be mindful of the masking, because there's 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 people in your groups that are neurodivergent that you may not even realize because they've spent their entire lives hiding it. Mm -hmm. As we get ready to transition to shift into questions, and we definitely want to hear back from you all. I want to encourage us all to resist the temptation to go back to business as usual when we get back to our organizations. I hope that you have heard something in this conversation so far that inspires you to ask the hard questions about your own identity, your own biases, and the harm you might be causing unintentionally when working across lines of difference. We're asking that you consider these same questions at scale. How does my team, my department, my business unit, my organization value diversity? How are we helping every team member to develop language, skills, and intentionality when building bridges across lines of difference? Inclusive leadership requires meaningful introspection, continuous curiosity, and an openness to considering the perspectives of others, and to do all of this with empathy. In today's society, ableism, racism, sexism, et cetera, it doesn't look like active aggression or hate. In today's experience, in today's society, our isms look like thoughtlessness. Proximity to power, proximity to privilege, proximity to dominant identities, 
gives us the gift of not really having to think about the lived experiences of those who don't share that dominant identity characteristic. It gives us the, the gift of being able to be emotionally, mentally lazy about how we think about making space and room for other people. And so I wanna challenge us all to continue to do our inclusive learning journey, yoga practice. Continue to push, continue to flex, continue to you know, push your learning edge, live in discomfort until it becomes less uncomfortable. And I think that's how we advance our practice. Um, and so with that, I'm gonna stop being sage on stage and I'm gonna invite any sort of questions or additions to the discussion that you would like to share. Um, so I'm, I'm Dara Presley from ICF. Um, so first thing, two things. So one, I actually didn't know that I had ADHD until like this year, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I did very well at school very well at work. And most of the times when we talk about neurodivergency, we talk about disability. And I actually think it's an ability. I, I naturally moved my way in life in ways that worked with me, which then worked with my brain. And it was only after my child many times over going, I've got ADHD. And I'm like, you're just like me. And then I was like, hmm, maybe there's something to that. But um, the thing that I want to say is that my team, so I work in user experience in a consulting firm in a matrixed environment it is absolutely having ADHD as a superpower in that place. And there are so many people like in our team, in our, in our you know, kind of greater 50 people team, but even then if you include the developers and some of the delivery folks that are neurodivision, it's actually we're more than the opposite. Mm -hmm. But you wouldn't know that unless you had conversations. It's very easy to see that I'm you know, a brown-skinned person in a female-shaped body. But it's actually difficult to see that I'm neurodivergent. So I would not assume that the person next to you is also not neurodivergent, because they, they might be. <laughs> so I think if you just are formulating a workplace that actually supports um, in general, so can you talked about that Procter & Gamble, what we actually do in our interview process, because I also don't think of that, I don't like that pre-work that you're doing for free. So. Mm -hmm. um, not to dismiss that study, but I, I, I don't believe in that. So we actually have a challenge, which is, you know, we, we present a design challenge. Um, they have, you know, an hour to kind of think about, you know, a problem statement and solve it. And there is no answer. It's just a chance for me to see their brain, see how their brain operates, and see if, like, hey, this is a brain that can bring value. And, uh, and then in our, work, in our way of working, we work collaboratively you know, we work in, we use the tools because we're very remote. So we work, you know, online with various different tools and it gives a person a plan, chance to not only create their own environment for where they're working, but then ability to contribute in the way that's best for them. So, you know, that's kind of just, I just wanted to add that, that point. So, and also because I'm not in HR and you were really talking from an HR perspective. So actually that one final point, having hiring managers at a higher level helps to bring diversity because my team is the most diverse in probably in our whole company because I'm a director there. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And having you in the role that you are in creates mirrors for other diverse talent um, and makes your team, makes you a talent magnet 
within the organization. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind also. I have a question for you because um, with our company, we have, um, we have the neurodiversity program where we're attracting the new talent and we're training the managers on the new talent. But one of the concerns that I have is for the talent that we already have, like those people who are already on the teams and neurodivergence is, it can be hidden, like it's not something that everyone knows or sees. So what tips or strategies do you have to attract managers and leaders to be aware of it and mindful of it, or at least to notice it and then want to dive in deeper and making sure that they provide those resources for their teams? So um, a couple things that I would recommend is for those existing team members, um, having, um, you know, whether it's workshops or webinars or, um, doing like those lunch and learns FAQ sessions. So if you have access to um, an ERG, those are great people to bring in to host um, something about neurodivergency, just to get the awareness, because it's first getting the awareness of like, what is it? And then how do we support it? And then that will naturally start bringing some of some of your employees that are neuro, neurodiverse into the conversation. Because yeah, they're, it's not like it's on an application that you check a box. Um, and sometimes they may not even know, they may just think, you know, I don't belong here because I don't think like the rest of the group. I also think that if an organization makes it safe for people to self-identify. So ability is one of those things, or disability is one of those things that um, unless you have a visible disability, you have to self-report. Um, and so many organizations that we've had the opportunity to work with, um, they have created a disability affinity space for employees who identify as having a disability. and many of those organizations within the disability identity group have created another subgroup specifically for neurodivergence um, because people oftentimes identify later in life um, as being neuro neurodivergent. But what I have seen is that by creating those communities, you create a safe environment for people to self-identify and to name their superpower, name their identity to their to their managers, um, and also do so more publicly. And and I think that's really the foundation of how you begin to take care of people who are neurodiverse that are already there. Um, is make them feel psychologically safe to self-identify, so that they can communicate what they need. So going back to the comment I made earlier about the best way to out to be an ally is to ask the individual across lines of difference, what does my support look like to you in this moment? Um, if I don't feel psychologically safe to identify as a person who is neurodivergent, you're never gonna be able to ask me and I'm never gonna be empowered to tell you what allyship, what good stewardship of my talent and time looks like in this moment. So I think the question is really around how do you create psychological safety for the people who are neurodivergent within your organization, but haven't come out of the closet to use an LGBTQ plus term about that. Hi, I'm Sharon. I'm from um, NASA. Uh, so I'm a manager, so I'm not a 
human resource person, so there are some of us here in the room. So this is a very interesting conversation. Uh, I have a comment and then I have a question. Um, the comment is that I am, I think I'm dyslexic because I get my D's, P's, Q's, and um, you know, I, I flip them. <laughs> so, so one of the things that happened is when I first started working in my current job, my manager required us to take notes when we went to meetings, online notes. And which is really good. So I had to, it took me a while to make sure that I wasn't flipping those letters when I sent those notes out. And so I, I finally, I just had to tell them I flip letters. So you got to give me some time to get used to this whole format. So just letting you know that even simple things that other people can do, you know, it's really, really difficult. But my question is, so we had a situation to happen. So, you know, got a bunch of nerds at NASA, okay? And so we had this manager who said, when we do interviews, when, we, when we're interviewing all these people to come in, we want to also make them do a um, oral presentation. And so for, and I, a couple of us kind of pushed back on that because our, our point of view was, we have lots of individuals in our organization who are, you know, classically, you know, gifted and, they don't do the eye contact. They don't do you know, public speaking. And so if, it, if a nerd can't get hired at NASA, where's a nerd going to go? <laughs> so, so, you know, it's just, so if you have a culture that's trying to put people into, you know, not get those, the, the people who have those skills in, what do you do if your organization has those, you know, interview techniques where, you know, we, we're, it's, it's a very traditional interviewing technique. You know, what's your recommendation on how do you overcome that? I, my thought, and I would love to hear your thoughts as well, Stacey. Um, my thought is <clears throat> it's probably more about focusing on the hiring managers, the people who are doing the screening, to make sure that they are using an intercultural mindset, that they're using an inclusive mindset to make meaning of what they're seeing mm -hmm. in the interview process and that they are not disadvantaging um, people with various disabilities or with various forms of neurodivergence and or any other type of disability. Mm -hmm. um, but they're focused on, I love the comment that she made, like can this brain bring value mm -hmm. to the work that, that we're doing and, and making sure that the people who are the talent selectors, the gatekeepers in the interview process are using a, a more expansive lens when they are evaluating talent. If the organization is not able to kind of, NASA is a large government organization, right? It's kind of like turning the Titanic to get it to do something differently in its interview process, but I think you can more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, provide resources for talent screeners mm -hmm. so that they can appropriately make meaning of what they're seeing and do so in ways that don't disadvantage people who have specific diverse identities. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would also add for you, um, um, I always like to look at what's the end goal. Mm -hmm. So what's the end goal of like hiring this person? What do we really need them to do when they're with us? Well, so what's the output? And then, saying, okay, this is what this person is, is going to do if they're successful at their job. How do we then screen or have this person prove that they can do that? If 
to your point, if an oral presentation is really not something that they're going to do in their day-to-day work, you can just, like, that's a question to just ask, like, how is this relevant to, and who are we excluding? So you can, like, put your bias hat on, right? Like, what biases are we bringing to the conversation? What biases are we bringing in with our selection process? Who are we excluding? So, you know, unfortunately, you have to be that voice, right? The voice of, um, you know, the devil's advocate, if you will, of just asking those questions of like, who are we excluding? Like, who on our teams are not great oral presenters, but can run circles and do their job in their sleep? And that was our push. This was 10 years ago, by the oh, way. Oh, okay. So, this is 10 years okay. ago. So, uh, but it, we, were, we were hiring like seven early career folks. Yeah. And, and the rationale was we, I, we want people who are leaders. But the problem is, is that every, everybody on that team, you're, you're excluding people that we already have who, who never give presentations, but they're excellent people as far as our team. So, yeah. I want to be mindful. We have like two minutes left yes. before we're supposed to wrap. They, here's just a link to some resources. I would love to continue the conversation with each of you, with any organization that is at any stage on their inclusive leadership learning journey. Organizations like the Intersection Collective are here to support and help, um, particularly for those organizations that don't have complete DEI and A teams in-house. That's what organizations like mine are here to support. It's like we provide bandwidth and capacity for organizations that don't have this subject matter expertise in-house. And we would be delighted to partner with any of you. And I'd love to connect with any, I mean, my LinkedIn is up there, so I'd love to connect and um, share stories. Thank you so much for coming and persisting through this conversation with us. It's not always easy to ask these hard introspective questions. And I'm sincere about my offer to kind of walk with any of you along your individual or your organizational learning journeys. Thank you.